Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. This is episode number 13 of season nine. Today is Wednesday, July 26th, 2023. My name is Sonal Patel and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. Now, all right, you guys, I have been recording my Paint the Medical Picture podcast for a couple of months now on Spotify for podcasters. So definitely, if you haven't already followed and subscribed to me on Spotify, you can go ahead and do so now, because I know you all have fabulous playlists of music on Spotify as well, but definitely check out all of their lineups of podcasts that they host as well, and definitely find Paint the Medical Picture podcast on Spotify. And of course, it's been available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and you can also check out my own YouTube channel, Paint the Medical Picture Podcast, that's available as well. So I cannot wait to see all of you finding me, supporting me, ranking me, giving me those gold stars, whatever it is you have to do to show a little bit of love. I love it because I love creating this podcast series for all of us in this little niche space of medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance. So can't wait to see you all. All right, you guys, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode, right? What am I going to get into? As you guys know, it's the very last Wednesday of the month. And by now, after two years, you should know it's my very favorite newsworthy fraud, waste and abuse highlights for the month of July. And of course, I'll be spotlighting some of those from the month's criminal and civil enforcement cases that I find very, very newsworthy. And then I'll write you guys in my compliance tips and compliance recommendations today. I wanted to dive into the latest CBR or comparative billing report that I always do at the end of each and every month. However, it is not yet available. So more than likely, I will have to drop it the following week when I cover that CBR. So in today's trusty tip, I'm going to be diving into telehealth documentation and coding. Just a few gentle reminders based on what I'm seeing as I audit. We still need to be mindful of our documentation and code selection choices. And then of course, I'm gonna go ahead and round out today's episode with the remarkable quote on success by Benjamin Disraeli. If you guys have checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and our valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, want to dive in deeper, choose my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve your coding accuracy as you help all your providers paint the medical picture. If you guys like what you're hearing, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and definitely, definitely do start following this podcast on Spotify. I'd really love your support on Spotify as well. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and my compliance recommendations based on my over 13 years of experience in front office, in back end, in coding, and in billing for multi-specialty physicians, in compliance, and in auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. Remember, these are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. Today's episode is sponsored by Advanced Coding Services, a leading medical billing and medical coding school in the United States. Whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, 
Our training equips you with the tools and support you need to advance your career. Our medical billing and coding school meets your needs worldwide online or in person with one-on-one -on -one support throughout your training. We are committed to helping our alumni and credentialed medical community in keeping up their certifications by offering various avenues for acquiring your continuing education units. In addition to our Mastering the Business of Medicine retreats offered several times throughout the year in different parts of the country, we now offer memberships. You can conveniently earn your CEUs by attending our exclusive members-only webinars. Since our aim is to nurture and grow the careers of individuals who work in the business of medicine, we call our member area the Apple Orchard. Advanced Coding Services. Educate. Nurture. Inspire. Reaching back with a hand up. So let's get into Newsworthy, the month's fraud, waste, and abuse cases. The month of July saw 26 cases as of the recording of this episode. Early July saw a behavioral and mental health services provider who has agreed to pay over $4.5 million to resolve allegations that it billed Virginia Medicaid for services not provided. As part of the resolution, this behavioral and mental health services provider further agreed to be subject to a period of five years of increased compliance and oversight during which any failure to comply with its obligations may result in criminal prosecution and contempt of court proceedings that could result in additional monetary sanctions and injunctive relief. The allegations involved the organization billing Medicaid improperly for three separate behavioral health services available to children who qualify. Therapeutic Day Treatment is a school-based program designed to assist children with various mental health diagnoses who need support during the school day. Now this organization billed Virginia Medicaid for providing services to students who were absent from school and when school was not open due to holiday or weather closures. Intensive in-home services is a home-based program designed to help children who have various mental health diagnoses and are at risk of being removed from their home. Now, this organization billed Virginia Medicaid for intensive in-home services provided by an employee who was having a sexual relationship with a juvenile patient in Virginia. That employee has since been prosecuted by state authorities and is serving a 10-year sentence. And then finally, behavioral therapy services and applied behavioral analysis must be provided by specifically trained mental health professionals. This organization billed for behavioral health services that were provided by individuals who were not properly trained nor credentialed in Southwest Virginia and used the name and national provider identifier number, the NPI number, of a properly trained and credentialed mental health professional located in Northern Virginia who had never seen clients in this organization's location of Southwest Virginia. The agreement resolves this behavioral and mental health services provider of potential criminal liability based on the investigation. As part of the resolution, the organization has committed to various compliance measures, including, but not limited to, increased compliance and audit requirements, unannounced audits, and enhanced reporting requirements if and when there are incidents of theft, fraud, abuse, or neglect. Early July also saw a California doctor 
and medical practice agreed to pay $11.4 million to resolve False Claims Act allegations relating to skin biopsies, spine surgeries, and urine drug testing. Now, regarding the skin biopsies, the settlement resolves allegations that from 2016 to 2021, the doctor and his practice performed medically unnecessary skin biopsies to test patients for small fiber neuropathy. As part of the settlement, the physician and his practice acknowledged that he created what he named a, quote, artificial intelligence team, end quote, of non-provider staff who were required to order at least 150 skin biopsies per week for patients without the consent of the patient's treating providers at the practice. Each biopsy order stated that the patient had identical symptoms of small fiber neuropathy, yet those symptoms were generally inconsistent with those patients' actual symptoms. He and his practice also acknowledged as part of this settlement that if a patient refused a skin biopsy, the practice told the patient that they would reduce their opioid medication and instructed the patient's provider to immediately taper the patient's medication. Now, in regards to the spinal cord stimulation surgeries, the settlement also resolves allegations that from 2018 to 2021, the physician and the practice performed medically unnecessary surgeries to implant spinal cord stimulators, which is an invasive surgery of last resort for the treatment of chronic pain. He paid a psychiatrist to state to Medicare and Medicaid insurers that the psychiatrist had performed a necessary psychological evaluation on each patient prior to receiving the surgery and that the patient did not have any pre-existing psychological or active substance abuse disorders that would adversely affect their response to the surgery. But he and the practice knew that the psychiatrist did not perform in-person psychological evaluations of any patients and ignored indications that many patients suffered from psychological or substance abuse disorders before receiving spinal cord stimulation surgery. Further, in regards to urine drug testing, the settlement resolves allegations that from 2017 to 2021, the physician and the practice performed medically unnecessary definitive urine drug testing, which identifies the concentration of specific medications, illicit substances, and metabolites in urine samples. Blanket orders of urine drug testing, identical orders for all patients, without regard to each patient's individualized medical necessity for the test, are not covered by Medicare. He and the practice acknowledged that they made identical orders of urine drug tests for all patients to be tested every four months and ordered the maximum number of drug panels for each patient using the Healthcare Common Procedure Coding System code, or HCPCS code, G0483. The practice's CEO stated to the physician that performing urine drug tests on all their patients, quote, should be a big money maker, end quote, and called it, quote, Operation G0483, end quote. When a new consultant for the practice told the physician that it was, quote, medically unnecessary but also wasteful, end quote, to order the maximum number of drug panels for each patient, the physician directed a practice executive not to contact this consultant, quote, because she might report us for anything, end quote. 
Now, in conjunction with this resolution of the False Claims Act liability for this physician, he also agreed to be excluded under 42 U.S.C. 1320A-7B7 for five years. Early July also saw a dermatologist agreeing to pay $6.6 million to settle allegations of fraudulent billing practices. The dermatologist and his practice have agreed to pay $6.6 million to resolve allegations that they violated the False Claims Act by knowingly submitting false claims to federal health care programs for Mohs micrographic surgeries and other dermatological procedures. The settlement resolves allegations that he and the practice knowingly submitted false claims for payment to Medicare, Medicaid, and other government payers for Mohs procedures that were billed as if both the surgery and pathology portions of the procedures were performed by the doctor, when in fact at least one portion was often performed by other individuals. The settlement further resolves allegations that the practice regularly billed Medicare for multiple procedures performed on the same patient on the same day in a manner that improperly circumvented Medicare's multiple procedure reduction rule. This alleged misconduct occurred from the years 2010 through 2020. As part of the settlement, the dermatologist and the practice entered into an integrity agreement, or IA, with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Office of Inspector General, the HHS OIG, which promotes its future compliance with the statutes, regulations, program requirements, and written directives of Medicare and all other federal health care programs. The integrity agreement focuses on the, on the practice's continuing obligation to accurately bill and properly submit reimbursement claims to government payers. Mid-July saw a pain management physician's assistant charged in an amniotic fluid scan. The U.S. attorney on the case stated, quote, this defendant allegedly claimed that amniotic fluid, a product that has never been approved to treat pain, would alleviate his patient's suffering. He allegedly told patients that the treatment was covered by Medicare, kindling false hopes. To add insult to injury, he allegedly scammed Medicare out of more than half a million dollars, end quote. And according to the indictment, this PA and others allegedly submitted just under $800,000 in fraudulent claims and received more than $600,000 in reimbursements from Medicare for injecting amniotic fluid, which is the liquid that surrounds a growing fetus during gestation. And this was injected into patients' connective tissue in an off-label attempt to relieve joint pain. Certain amniotic products have been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, that's our FDA, for wound care, but not for pain management. In fact, the FDA has issued repeated consumer alerts warning that biologics like amniotic fluid have not been approved for the treatment of any orthopedic condition such as osteoarthritis, tendonitis, disc disease, tennis elbow, back pain, hip pain, knee pain, neck pain, or shoulder pain, nor for chronic pain, nor for fatigue. Now, because amniotic products have not been approved to treat pain, Medicare considers amniotic injections administered to treat pain medically unnecessary and does not reimburse for them. 
They do reimburse for some, but not all, amniotic injections administered to reduce inflammation of damaged tissue, as in a wound. Now, this physician assistant primarily used cell genuity, an amniotic, an amniotic product for which Medicare would not reimburse, neither for wound care nor for pain. Initially, because the product was not covered by insurance, he allegedly asked patients to pay out of pocket more than $800 per injection. Due to this high cost and questionable efficacy, however, many patients refused. In August 2020, he allegedly found an amniotic product called Fluid Flow, for which Medicare would reimburse for wound care. He spoke with a sales rep about fluid flow reimbursement rates and billing requirements, but did not purchase any fluid flow, which was significantly more expensive than cell genuity. Instead, he allegedly continued to inject cell genuity into patients, but billed the shots to Medicare under fluid flow's unique code of HCPCS code Q4206. Because they were told insurance would cover the cost of the injections, more patients consented to this procedure. Under the scheme, the pain clinic allegedly profited around $1,200 per cc of cell genuity that they injected. Now, had the clinic used fluid flow, they would have made only around $400 per cc. From August to October of 2020, the clinic submitted more than 100 bills for fluid flow to Medicare and received around $400,000 in reimbursements. The PA then received a cut of those reimbursements totaling over $200,000. The indictment further charges that in November 2020, in an attempt to avoid detection, he suddenly halted this alleged scheme after he became concerned that a sudden increase in the volume of billings might attract the attention of investigators. With no repercussions over the ensuing 10 months, this PA allegedly re-engaged in the scheme in October 2021 and continued through December 2021. In mid-October, he allegedly purchased 10 cc's of fluid flow for $20,000, the only recorded purchase of fluid flow by the clinic. He continued to purchase significant quantities of cell genuity, despite purchasing only 10 cc's of fluid flow this PA billed Medicare for approximately 394 cc's of fluid flow in the subsequent months. An indictment is merely an allegation of criminal conduct, not evidence. Like all defendants, this physician assistant is presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. If convicted on all counts, this PA faces up to 120 years in federal prison, 10 years per count. Now, there were many, many of the other usual suspects as well, from genetic testing and DME fraud, laboratory schemes, more opioids and oxycodone cases, and even more kickbacks and bribery schemes. But I wanted to go ahead and pay particular attention to a blockbuster case involving an EHR company. Now, the electronic health records vendor, NextGen Healthcare, is to pay $31 million to settle False Claims Act allegations. Now, NextGen has agreed to pay 
$31 million to resolve allegations that they violated the False Claims Act, the FCA, by misrepresenting the capabilities of certain versions of its EHR software and providing unlawful remuneration to its users to induce them to recommend NextGen's software. Now, in a complaint filed in conjunction with this settlement, the United States contends that NextGen falsely obtained certifications for its software in connection with the 2014 edition certification criteria published by HHS's Office of the National Coordinator. Specifically, the government alleges that NextGen relied on an auxiliary product designed only to perform the certification test scripts, to which concealed from the certifying entity that NextGen's EHR lacked critical functionality. The government alleges that consequently, the EHR that NextGen ultimately released to its users lacked certain required functionalities, including the ability to record vital sign data translate data into required medical vocabularies, and create complete clinical summaries. In its complaint, the government also alleges that NextGen violated the anti-kickback statute, which prohibits anyone from offering or paying, directly or indirectly, any remuneration to induce referrals of items or services covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and other federally funded programs. In its complaint, the government contends that notwithstanding this prohibition, NextGen knowingly gave credits, often worth as much as $10,000, to current customers whose recommendation of NextGen's EHR software led to a new sale. The government also alleges that other remuneration, including tickets to sporting events and entertainment, was also provided to induce purchases and referrals. The civil settlement includes the resolution of claims brought under the KETAM or whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act by two healthcare professionals at a facility that used NextGen software. Under those provisions, a private party can file an action on behalf of the United States and receive a portion of any recovery. The whistleblowers in this case will receive over $5 million. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. So in today's compliance tip, let's get into telehealth services after the PHE. Now I've been auditing so many claims and coordinating documentation that just do not show the appropriate documentation according to payer policies, as well as payer requirements for these practices to then receive appropriate reimbursement. So let's get into some big highlights for Medicare. Remember, through December 31st of 2024, all patients can get telehealth wherever they are located. They don't need to be at an originating site, and there aren't any geographic restrictions. Now, after December 31st of 2024, for non-behavioral or mental telehealth, there may be an originating site requirement and geographic location restrictions. And for behavioral or mental telehealth, all patients can continue to get telehealth wherever they're located with no originating site requirements or geographic location restrictions. And remember, there are still technology requirements for telehealth, right? That doesn't just go away because the PHE has been over since May 11th. 
Now, for most non-behavioral or mental telehealth, you must use two-way interactive audio-video technology. Because remember, under Section 411.3 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, this allows you to use audio-only telehealth for some non-behavioral or mental telehealth through December 31st, 2024. And be mindful that for behavioral or mental telehealth, you may use two-way interactive audio-only technology. And what about those claim forms, right? What do you do when you're capturing on the claim form? Now, there are places of service, right, that are always important to our healthcare claim forms, and there's nothing different about telehealth. So those, those place of service codes, POS codes, that you still need to consider post-PHE. So for 2023, continue billing telehealth claims with the POS indicator that you would bill for an in-person visit. And then you must use that modifier 95 to identify them as telehealth services through December 31st of 2023. And again, I'm addressing Medicare specifically. Now, after December 31st of 2023, you can use place of service 02 for telehealth to indicate that you provided the billed service as a professional telehealth service when the originating site is something other than the patient's home. And then also be mindful and use place of service 10 for telehealth for services when the patient is in their home. And again, this is for claims for dates of service on December 31st, 2023 and later. And then finally, the biggest piece that I still see missing in documentation that I audit today is consent. And remember, Medicare requires patient consent for all services, including non-face-to-face -face services. You may get patient consent at the same time that you initially provide the services. Direct supervision isn't required to get consent. In general, your auxiliary personnel under general supervision of the billing practitioner can get patient consent for these types of services. The person getting consent can be an employee, an independent contractor, or a leased employee of the billing practitioner. Because it's fundamental, if you have Medicare as a payer, to keep your eye on correct and compliant coding and billing practices, and make sure that you are adhering to all of them, even post-PHE, for telehealth services. And finally, I focus season nine spark on success. I want this ninth season spark to be filled with our world's thought leaders, writers, artists, philosophers, everyone who inspires the need for success in all we strive to do. So in this week's inspiring quote in spark is from Benjamin Disraeli. Success is the child of audacity. Wow, that's absolutely true, right? I think this is an amazing quote that reminds us we can be audacious, that we can be bold, that we can dream big, that we can act bigger. This quote reminds us that it is that hunger, that drive, that audacious spirit that can lead to our success. 
I think this quote inspires us to keep blazing the trail for whatever it is that we define as success. I'm happy Benjamin Disraeli's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. And as always, I appreciate you all diving into today with me. If you want more information from me, please go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn. I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. All right, you guys. So in my final note today, I hope you're all still staying motivated, right? It is the middle of summer. So stay motivated and stay positive for your personal and your professional lives. July is quickly wrapping up here. Just a few more days left in the month, right? And there's still time, a little bit of time left to plan those summer road trips, those camping weekends, and those beach vacations. So just do it. Make time for those summer spirits to soar. Get out there, find some sunshine for all of your next chapters. I know you should all deserve a lot of fun. So anyways, you guys, I wish you all an amazing and very, very happy week ahead, decompressing from any of that stress that brings you down. Thank you guys so much for listening in on today's episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday.